0: Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is a true, a true pleasure. Uh, I love this guy. This is a real life friend. This is a brilliant person who's also a good person. And um, actually, my guest today went to college with my lifelong best friend and creative partner, David Levine, even though They weren't close in college, they knew of each other and knew each other were uh, both on this path as writers, they had very different experiences there. Elwood wrote an incredible novel right out of college called If I Don't Six. He wrote uh, a book of short stories that is one of my favorite modern books of short stories called What Salmon Know. Uh, I wish you could make a living as a short story writer because it kills me that I don't get to read his short stories anymore. Uh, And has had an illustrious career in the television business currently. He is the creator, showrunner, executive producer of Barkskins on uh, National Geographic, which Elwood, uh, Elwood Reed, everybody. Uh, Elwood, you, um, you really did something here, man, on this show. It has a tone, a point of view. It is super compelling. The performances are great. And every second of it I watched made me so happy I wasn't the guy who had to go there and make this show.
1: That gets high praise, dude, because, uh, you know, you always, I think, <clears throat> when you're on the other side of the curtain in Oz, we're constantly putting ourselves, I think, in the other person's shoes going, how would I have done that? Could I have done that? Um, yes. I, I know I do that with your show. I, I mean, likewise. I, I, I could not have done your show. I, I know that. And that's New York, and it's Kush. I was in the woods. I just... Just dealing with this sort of like scale and and, and feeling responsible for talking about New York City—that's something I know I can't do. So I'll, I'll take the woods; you take the fucking city.
0: Right. No, that's it's a fair deal. No, no. I mean, it's fascinating the way we pick our subjects. And I mean, I I I was talking to Levine about this, like watching your show. How far and I mean, it's funny. Levine can do anything. Levine could go work on your show, but I uh, I know that I couldn't. And in the same way that. I remember you read the script of Billions. You gave us some really good notes on it. But but I remember you saying, I, you know, I have a really hard time understanding the North Star of this show because it was so far from what, and then you really dig the show once it was a show. But you were like getting your arms around those particular concerns with those kind of people. And from the outside, I would have said the same about your show because I don't dig any Proulx's books really. They're not my thing. The world of that is not something that interests me at all. Yet I find your show utterly compelling. So kudos to you, man.
1: You know, can I go back to something you said? It's, it, you triggered something in me, a thought, because I've been talking a lot about the process and, yes. you know, writing and all this stuff. What you just said, my reaction to reading your script, is probably the same reaction you would have to reading my script. And as I've gotten older as a writer, what I've come to realize is that the good stuff, it's really fucking complicated. Um, and, and I don't that, i don't mean that in a way yeah. like I mean that in a way like it's the first time you eat sushi, you fucking hate it, right? Yeah. Uh, or, you, you know, you, it, it's, it takes a while for, I think, the show to find itself because it's setting laying so much track. And your show is very similar to that, not to talk about our shows, but um, uh, those are the things that I look for now. Like uh, the best thing I can give anybody when I read a show is like, I don't know. I, I don't know what the show is. Like that's exciting to me. When I know what a show is and I see it on the page, I think that's what the network executives are always looking for. But I feel like that's sort of the that's a punch and not a fight. Um, yeah. And I, and I've as I've gotten older, I've gotten smarter about being able to go. You know what? It's okay. People are going to figure out what it is. And you know, I, I granted, there's a event horizon where you can't go back. You can't have five or six episodes. But you know, in that pilot, you know, going back to even the Sopranos pilot, which I know you and I talk about a lot, it's you don't know what that show is. It's not a mob show. It's it's a it's a weird therapy show. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's it flips back and forth in time. And it's, has this uneasy slipping back and forth in tone. And I think those are, as I've gotten older, those are the shows that I gravitate towards to both watching and trying to replicate.
0: Yeah. I, I totally understand that. I, I, I always think, and then I will take this. I have, I have a lot of stuff. I actually want to get you to talk about, but, um, but this is when I start thinking about Harold Bloom and I start thinking about strangeness. And and strangeness has become a buzzword for me and Dave. Not strangeness like being odd, but being comfortable with something being unsettling and that getting your arms around what it is and it's is hard. Now, that doesn't mean for you listening... Uh, Your show has to have a point of view and it has to be, it has to be clear to you what it is. Uh, Correct. Elwood, you're not saying, I mean, the worst thing is when you get a pile of pages and you feel like there's no authorial voice pushing it forward.
1: No, no. No, that's not what I'm saying. And and it's funny you call it strangeness. You and I have not talked about this full disclosure. I call it weirdness. Highly Awesome. And I'm always looking for, I think it goes back to me. We could talk forever about books. But for TV, it goes back to me about David Lynch and even I think Herzog in the movie side. Sure, There's always these strange, unsettling things that don't make any sense and they still don't make sense to me. I think about David Lynch stuff all the time, even 20 years from now. It doesn't make sense. But what that does, I think, that strangeness or weirdness you're talking about, is it causes the mind. There's a French word, uh, I don't know what the fuck it's called, but like to think back, to recall, to remember. Um, th- that's, that's what you want people doing with your show is engaging with your show after it's over with. And I find that strangeness and weirdness are the things that send people back going, what did they mean by that? What was that scene about? Like that, not, not in a confusion sense, but like, you know, there's something there. You don't know what it is.
0: Yeah. To- completely agree with you, man. It is like the horseback riding scene in diner when <laughs> they say, we get the feeling something's going on, you know, uh, there's a whole world's going on. You know, anything about that scene is one of those, it's weird, it's an amazing achievement by Levinson because it's actually what they're saying in the scene is, is the reaction you have as the, as, as the viewer watching it. And it does bring you back. And like, there's a reason in that film, he references Seventh Seal because Seventh Seal, which is the most compelling film you could ever watch is completely strange.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. And you feel dislocated. I I mean, look again, we're talking about television. I know the majority of the television market out there is what they call dishwasher television where you can do something, wash the dishes, watch it, and still understand the gist of it. That's not personally how I watch television. That's also not how I think about television or write about television. Or, you know, I, 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 I want things that you want to lean into. And, and, and look, that leaning in, it's hard. It goes back to what we were talking at the beginning of the conversation. When you give me a script, you're asking me to lean in onto something in the page that I know that's going to come alive in all these weird ways, and that tone is going to come through. That's not necessarily always there, and I've seen it so many times. I think I see things, I encounter scenes that I've written, and I don't know what they are. But when they when they come, I have a feeling I know it's going to work. You know, you as you get more confident as a showrunner, you can push back on a note or tell an actor it's going to work. Trust me. You know, and I know that sounds like a douchey thing to say, but but it, it as you get older, I think you have a better sense of what's going to work and what's not.
0: Yeah, when when you've had the reps, and and I will say. When you said lean in, and I've said this before on the show when when I've had certain friends of mine on, when we read each other's scripts uh, or projects, we take that so seriously. And so I remember, you know, even as you were saying to us the thing about not being sure about sort of what we were exactly doing, you were like, not that we didn't know we were doing, you were saying you didn't. Uh, you, you came up with this notion. You were like, uh, before Axe makes this talk in the conference room, I want to see him getting ready. And we put this that scene in where Axe is washing his hands and looking in the mirror. And that was a direct reaction to you asking a question. Your question was like, well, right before we see that, you know, what is his mindset? How can you give me one window? And that was a really great note. And, you know, that made it all the way to air. So the... That's what we look for when, when fellow professionals give other professionals scripts. Don't you think, you're you're not looking for, hey, here's why it's wonderful. You're looking for like actionable ways to make changes.
1: I gotta be honest with you. I tell this, lots of people try to send me stuff and I'm, I've am i become crankier and more brutally honest in my old age, but uh, when someone tells me, it's great, I love it, I'm never gonna ask them again. I'm, just <laughs> not, I'm, not, I'm never gonna ask them to read anything that I've written because I, I always know things can be better. Um, and, and, you know, going back to that, I, I didn't realize that that hand-washing scene, I had forgotten, I'd even said something about that. But like, what you're talking about is that intimacy, that character intimacy that pulls you close in all great shows, you know, for Tony, it's watching the ducks and the Sopranos or, you know, I can think of hundreds of other examples, but it's that, it, that thing that pulls you close to a character, that human intimate, and most of the times it's nonverbal. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a nonverbal gesture that an actor comes up with, are you scripted in there? That, that I'm in man. I'm, when I see that oh, it's
0: Don I, Draper, it's Don Draper before he approaches the guy at that bar when he's just writing those ideas and stuck. And then he asks for the cigarette. Like the, I agree with you. Those little oh, moments. You're, you're
1: in, you're in, you're there. You're like, cause I've done that. I've done that. You know, I mean, all the other stuff is talking heads. It's
0: great. You know, we all love writing the
1: dialogue, but it's that finding that alchemy between the actors that can find those gestural moments. And I script them a lot. I script a lot, a lot of blocking in my stuff. Um, uh, as I've gotten older I just I think the blocking is super important
0: i I agree no I feel it in in the show all right but as as um as obvious as my path to Hollywood was uh, in on reflection yours is uh, uh, unlikely and uh, I really uh, you know you haven't been out in the public eye so much that so many people know your story and I find your story totally compelling man and I'm wondering, I think, could you just walk me through, let's start here. Talk about where you were born and grew up, but could you walk me through, you can just list them or say as much as little as you want. Walk me through the jobs you had up until you were able to make your living as a writer. And then and then I want you to be granular and talk about the steps that led you to becoming a showrunner. And this can end up being like the whole podcast, but I want you to, because I'll ask you a lot of questions along the way, but I want you to be granular about your path because as I look at it, you're a guy who went from short, you know, literary short story writer you know, the kind of person who would go to Yaddo and McDowell, Michigan writing program with fancy people. Uh, You know, you were a football player at a top division one football program and you unpeeled layers and put new layers on. And then you, you know, you got on one show, you did worked on a terrible show. You worked on a good show. You worked on a massive hit show. You rose up on that show. Can you just walk us through from beginning to sort of now the journey um, that, that you've been on?
1: Well, I mean, I think just to sort of lay like a, a bedrock, and, and and I think all the journeys that for most arts, they they have a fairly common denominator. For me, clearly, it was books, and I know it was you with you too as books. Yes. Um, there, there's the, the, it, those are, those act as like guiding lights. So you know, again, I come from Cleveland, uh, working class background. Um, spent my childhood, you know, working on farms. Uh, where, you know, I, you know, I was a good athlete. Uh, I was a. I would say I was a better than average athlete, so much that I got recruited for football and wrestling. Um, and uh, I had half a notion to join the army or go to West Point because we didn't have the money to go to college. And I was like, okay. Um, I took a football scholarship uh, to University of Michigan. And, and look, I, I and this is full disclosure, I wrote a book about it. I, I never loved football. I loved wrestling. I liked beating people up, but there was no such thing as MMA when I was younger. If, if there had been MMA, I probably would have went on a wrestling scholarship and been one of those. You know, cauliflower eared thugs you see working in a, <laughs> you know, a bar and long. Well,
0: yeah, I should tell people who don't know that you're a massive, massive human being. What are you, six six, three hundred and twenty? At your,
1: what I'm, would you I'm at your I'm biggest? Not to be so massive, but yes, I am six six. A prominent of brow, and uh, you know, I, I look like a guy who's going to come move your furniture. So, look, I again, not to stereotype. I knew. I I knew going to college, I saw the smart kids. I saw the Russian novel class. I was there to play football. And I was a dumb jock. I did not, I I did not, I went there to game the system.
0: Uh, You did publish. I mean, Levine said you did publish in some lit mag at at Michigan.
1: I won an award in my senior year, but that was only after I got injured because once I got injured, I had a catastrophic injury where I was in traction for a while. I ruptured my disc, it had had problems with my nerves and my neck and my spinal cord. That, um, Mm That, that allowed me to sort of like focus and go, okay, the most scary thing I could do as a student at University of Michigan was walk into a short story class or a Russian novel class. was the scariest thing. And I remember that day I walked into a Dostoevsky class and you know you, you can imagine who was in the Dostoevsky class, what they look like. Um, yes. Long hair, you know, very intense, uh, not the most popular kids in school. I, I, all I wanted to do was talk about you know, uh, notes from the underground or or crime and punishment. And, and, and they were slow to take to me, but that spark was, was born there. And then I ventured a few writing courses in undergraduate and, you know, we've all done those. Um, I was a terrible writer. I remember this one teacher, I don't even remember her name. She, uh, she just marked my entire paper and read all my passive verb construction and she ripped me apart, rightly so. Um, and I, I went away and that jock mentality kicked in. I was like, I'm better than this, this woman's right. You know, at, at the same time, fuck her, I'm gonna prove her wrong. And so I, I set myself, I went to her class. I, I, she taught me grammar basically in college. I did not know, I still don't to this day know how to use a comma or a semicolon. Um, but, but, I, but I learned and I read a lot and I was reading constantly. And then of course, when I got out of college, I tried to get into um, writing programs. The only writing program that would have me was University of Alaska. Now, dumb me. I wanted to go to Alaska cause I wanted to hunt and fish. So I went to the university of Alaska for about one semester, dropped out and became a carpenter, a frame carpenter. Um, I loved it. I, I was like a guy, you know, I was really good, super strong, could pound nails all day, lift walls. My nickname was Grizz up there. Uh, and uh, you know, it, I, I bopped around and then, and then I knew I wanted to write, but I, you know, the writing program up there wasn't giving me what I needed. And it was an excuse for me to go fishing and hunting, which I did. And then I moved around in a series of odd jobs from bouncer to baker. Um, I've been a bouncer probably for 10, 15 years in my life when I was trying to write. A, a carpenter I did, you know, remodeling. I did, you name it, I removed asbestos. I did uh, drug tests at the VA where I would go in for $100 a day in a peanut butter sandwich and let them test drugs on me with schizophrenic uh, Vietnam vets next to me. I did anything I could because I knew that my, the path to writing was for me was just going to be to outlast everybody else and I could, I could catch up because, you know, you've been in school. Those are the people that come in. They are super well read. They can turn a phrase. They're really witty and smart. I was not that guy. Um, You know, I read and, you know, you brought up Harold Bloom in the beginning. One of the, you know, people I'd encountered early on was Harold Bloom's that massive canon he had in his head. And so I had begun a project in my twenties to just simply read every author, every book. You know, so I pick Thomas Mann and read every Thomas Mann book. Thomas Mann's the one that broke me, by the way. But I'd read every. You know, I, I would pick an author okay. and read every book. By him. So you know, I was self-educating the whole time. But you know, a whole crazy series of jobs in between that. But again, that's part of that was part of my writing well,
0: When you were a carpenter in Alaska, though, because because I've read What Salmon Know, which is the yeah. book that describes that whole experience in short stories and in these incredible characters that you came across. It's not like being like Adam Carolla's stories of being a carpenter in California, man. I mean, you were a carpenter in Alaska. <laughs> the only so,
1: probably was the guys I was working with. You know, like one, one of my, I should say, this, he, was, he was a very good friend of mine. And you know, I'd gone on. We'd go on dip netting fishing trips where you would go into this raging river and you tie a rope around yourself because people die in this river. And then you take this huge net you dip it into the river for salmon. Um, this guy, uh, you know, uh, one guy had killed his wife. I, and we're out camping in the middle of nowhere, and he confesses why he's in Alaska. He's like, "Well, I did, I was in prison for ten years. I strangled my wife." And you know, the next day we went fishing, and he's like, "I hope you don't think anything less of me." And then you know, my other buddy was like a pillhead. We were running around every time we would go fishing. He would like, "I gotta stop at this trailer." And he'd run into a trailer, and I realized yeah. he was like, picking up or dropping pills. It was colorful characters. You know, I think I got away with it because I was I was the strongest guy there. I was the guy that every crew wanted because I could lift anything. Like I said, my nickname was Grizz. Like I was just this big, well,
0: well, yeah, I was going to say I would be now, you know, I'm not small. I'm six, you know, I've lost a lot of weight luckily, but I'm six feet. And, I would, and I'm a, you know, pretty good athlete and stuff. But I mean, I would, at the moment, a guy told me he killed anybody, his wife, uh, uh, someone with a, with a car accidentally dropping an anvil. That's a guy I'd be like, I'll meet you tomorrow for fishing. And I would be in another state by that night. I would literally have just been in, in Canada by the next morning. Uh, But I guess your size uh, and sort of sense of self allowed you to wade into these situations in a way, right?
1: Well, that's true. But also, you know, look, I, and this not to get too weird or too deep here, but like, I, I, you know, there's this thing that, uh, and there's, there's a term for it in Asian cultures, they have like what's called situational ethics, which is they don't judge people on what they've done in the past. They judge the person they meet. And I think from an early age, I had always adopted that. Like, I, I don't try to judge people. Uh, until I see the manifested behavior that I don't like but I, I have no idea what they've done before I met them I hear your hear story, you know, how many times in Hollywood you hear stories? What an asshole someone is and then you meet them and they're smart and nice and witty and fun and so, you know, I, I think Everybody everybody is the hero of their own story and everyone's the sort of villain of their own story in that sense but like those guys that I met um, If you didn't have friends like that in Alaska You didn't have any friends because people in Alaska were up there looking for something They were running away or they were looking for something and from a writing standpoint, I was trying to find something. I was trying to find, you know, was I going to be a carpenter and a guy who lived in the woods and fished and hunted all day? Or was I going to be a writer? And it turns out I tried to do both for a long time, but like I was up
0: there running away from something. I was running away from life in the United States, not in the lower 48. What was it that didn't work for you about the post-college life in the continental United States? Like, what do you think you had to find by going so far away?
1: Well, I, I think it's because I come from the Midwest, you know, and it's, it's, too helpful, but, you know, everyone's parents dream in the Midwest is to get a job, get a suit, get a tie. You know, I'm not talking about a job on Wall Street. I'm just talking about, you know, you can be the manager of the, you know, of the tire factory. It doesn't matter. Um, but I, I, I knew that if I took a job that had a track that could lead itself towards, you know, a professional career that the Midwestern gene in me would take over. And I'd be like, okay, I'm going to, I mean, I seriously flirted with becoming a manager at Home Depot. I worked at Home Depot when I was uh, when my wife was in graduate school, and I and I loved it. I loved working at Home Depot, and they tried to get me into the management program there. And I was like, God, you know, if I do that, I'm going to be working at Home Depot the rest of my life. So I, again, I, I screwed myself a lot, and I think that's a, another trait I see with. Well, I mean, even dude, I know it with you. I mean, you kept like. Making weird sideways moves. I think you just look at creative people like that. Yes. They they they, they self sabotage the thing that they, that's easy for them and the thing that, the track that's open for them for this other thing. And I was not knowingly. I was self sabotaging all the time to be a writer.
0: And and were you what was your? So you were like what like twenty three or something like that when you were in Alaska or were you older? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And then I went. You know, I I went back to Michigan and. Was uh, opened up a construction company there and became. A, I was a bouncer for a long time because so I could, you know, work nights and then write morning.
0: And so what? Yeah, walk. So so during those years, what were what were your ambitions as as a writer? Was it a Hemingway thing? Is that why the short stories and then that novel that came out of your life? But uh, if I don't six was just about someone wanting to give up their, um, not wanting to give up their scholarship when when asked. Uh, but it, what were your ambitions? You know. Uh, Elwood Reed, uh, as a guy being a carpenter, trying to get comfortable in his own skin after self, you know, identifying as an athlete for so long. But, but but what was the specific creative ambition? What were you hoping to become? Well, I mean, for, as
1: far as writers goes, I think that's another reason I kind of fucked because I didn't have any sense of like, you know, the schools of writing at that time. But and, and to be honest with you, one of the books that early, early, early lit me up is something I could never do was Portnoy's Complaint by Philip Roth. Right. I remember reading that book going, holy shit, I have not, I read a lot of fantasy when I was younger, I read a lot of science fiction, um, and it was Portnoy's complaint, which is in a million years, I'm never going to write like Philip Roth. I don't have that life experience. I don't have that that electric, you know, uh, you know, verbosity that he had. I don't have it. So I spent a lot of time trying to model myself on him and then Flannery O'Connor, another person of many, 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 many people have tried to write like Flannery O'Connor and died on the rocks of that, of that. Day. Right icy shore it's a she's a tough one to to, to emulate so um for me I, I discovered raymond carver and i know that you know that was you know he's kind of a forgotten name nowadays but raymond carver and not in
0: my i mean you know not in my house he's not oh, no, I know. my, well, my you, wife but i mean if you think about it amy writes so oh, much like uh a- amy writes so much like carver in certain no, ways
1: i could i could see amy with amy hempel and raymond carver like but that's all gordon lish and I, and, and that was a bad thing back then and and, and that that was called minimalism but it was Barry Hanna and Raymond Carver. When I discovered them, a light bulb went off. And I was like, I can do this. Um, and right. I meant on the page. I, I'm not going to be Philip Roth. No one's going to be Philip Roth. I'm not gonna
0: when did Jim him. Harrison come into that?
1: You know, it's funny. Oddly enough, Jim Harrison came in as a poet into my life. I had read some of his short stories in a novel. I loved them. But it's it, as I've gotten, you know, and I've known Jim. I, I knew Jim quite a while. His right. poet meant an awful lot to me. There was a sort of plain spoken artistic, you know, uh, open heartedness yet there was a, you know, uh, erudition in it. And then there was also this sort of low life Midwestern guy in there. Um, uh, and it, it's in his prose, of course, the
0: short stories, you know, the legends of the fall was a very big book for me. Um, and even yeah. Dalva. Me, me too, man. Legends of the fall was a huge book. Even the revenge story and they're all the stories in that book. Man meant names, those are, those are yeah, great. They meant a lot to me too. Yeah. And, I get that. Yeah. I love it. I, I love it. So and, he- and so so you're 23 24 but first you're trying to write like Philip Roth up there that doesn't work. So you're you're still you're are you reading, you're working, you're reading, you're getting fucked up and that's just sort of what your life is uh, when you're in Alaska and and what made you leave? What, how did you know okay, I've gotten what I need out of this and, and move on?
1: Well I brought a, a woman up there who eventually became my wife and I could tell. Like, you know, she liked it, but that was not going to be a place she was going to hang long. So, um, and, you know, I, then I took a series of jobs and she said she was going to go to grad school. I ended up going, uh, to North Haven, Yale, followed her to grad school. And like, that's how I ended up working at home Depot. And then <clears throat> went back to Michigan with her where I ended up working in a punk club bar, um, uh, back in the, in the same place I'd went to college at for a long time. Cause I just, I was always looking for those jobs that, you know, I would, the reason I was never a successful carpenter, and I had friends that got successful at it, was that I, my goal as a carpenter was I would do jobs, make a lot of money, and then quit. I wouldn't take any jobs, and then I would write for two months. You know that writing was shit. I wasn't making any money from it, but it was that I just knew I just knew that if I kept taking the next job, pretty soon I was going to be that guy I saw in the parking lot outside the lumber store, dumping uh, you know a pint of vodka into his coffee in the morning, and going and or smoking meth nowadays would probably be what he'd be doing and then going to fucking pound nail, nails all day. I did not want to be that guy. So I, you know, again, it's that thing we go back to. I just, I, I was very careful not to step on any career path, even if it was a carpenter, um,
0: I wanted to be a writer. And, and when did you, so then what happened from there? How did, like, so you Because talk us through the, the transition from how you write your, how you finally get good enough where you, you start getting published.
1: Well, again, and then much later, I decided I had to go to. I mean, I, that I realized I was going to be a carpenter if I didn't do anything. So I applied to the University of Michigan's graduate writing program. I, that year, I applied to Iowa. I applied to every single writing program with with basically my collection of short stories um, that I had. I had written some of those stories already. Um, I uh, not not one school accepted me, um, not even Michigan. And then I met a friend who is a journalist. Uh, uh, and An author himself, a guy named Mike Patternetti uh, he had gone through the Michigan program he wrote a, um, uh, the book driving uh, Mr. Einstein dri- about driving out Einstein's brain and he wrote a book about the, this rare cheese in Spain but he was a guy a couple years older than me and he's like, I'm gonna get you into Michigan and I'm not kidding you he we drove up to breadloaf um, uh, which is a literary conference uh, we crashed this sort of like it's a you know they would have these little parties <laughs> And he walks me over to a man named Nick Delbanco, who was the head of the writing program at Michigan, and says, uh, I want you to meet my friend Elwood. He's a really good writer. I don't know why to this day Mike he did this for me. Wow. I'd served him drinks in the bar a few times, and you know he, he and I talked books. I have no idea why he did this
0: for me. Had he read your work?
1: Uh, yeah, he had. and And more importantly... Nick Delbanco who again was about as far from me as a writer as anybody could be. He was in the sort of like, you know, I mean, I'm not Philip Roth, but he's very erudite, very, you know, you know, really elaborate stuff. Very smart. He's like, um, uh, well, good. Let me read it. And he, I, I remember this, he in Bread loaf when they're up there drinking and having a good time and holding forth and acting like authors. Uh, we had, we we'd gone and stayed somewhere down in, in Vermont and, and he had called Mike the next day and he's like, yeah, this guy can write. He's like, tell him to apply and put my name on there. And at this time, I had not gotten, I had 27 rejections from writing programs. Uh, I was like, this guy named Nick Delbanco that was sitting in a linen suit, you know, (laughs) bread loaf, let me into Michigan and I forever owe him my life. He was my most brutal critic when I was there. He was so brutal with me and, you know, he was, I learned so much from him. I can't, but again, that goes back to that. We were talking about honesty. He, he, he was a guy who, he knew that he knew what the game was. And it's, you know, you were in the same game, dude. It's just, this is a serious game. It's a fun game. But, but the, when you put that shit out there, there's no taking it back writing. You cannot take it back. Yeah, of course, you know, I can't go riff on it again. It's a musician. I can't remix my song. I can't recut my film. When I write something. It's done. It's out there. And, you know, Delbanco understood that. And he was harsh on me. He gave me, I would leave his office with armloads full of books. He filled in a lot of my, you know, the, the books that I was lacking he was a harsh critic to me, but I learned, I, I, you know, he knew I was an athlete and I could take it and you know, I, he didn't matter how much he knocked me down. I would get back up. You know, I'm,
0: I've always been skeptical of writing programs in general because I'm not sure, sure what of it can be taught. You sure. were the kind of person who was going to write no matter what, and you weren't going to just be influenced by your peers because you and gabrielle hamilton have both separately told me that that who was there with you and who's i think just one of the greatest writers walking around wish you'd write more Uh, Well, did you read that piece she had in the times two months ago
1: i wrote her and i was like you know look i'm bummed about your restaurant but man happy for me we get to be more
0: writing from you yeah i wrote her too i was just like Gabrielle, i can't believe what you just accomplished but um but you know she was on the podcast she talked about a little bit i mean how did you separate yourself how so many people get crushed by their peers at writing programs, and it deflates them. How did you manage that piece of it? And do you think that you had those few years out in the real world helped?
1: Well, I was 27 when I went there. I was older, so I, I also didn't give a shit. And I was going there for mercenary reasons. I, I, I was going there because I had heard if you – well, that was the other thing. Nick Tobacco gave me a scholarship to go there. I had heard that if you get a scholarship, they would pay you to teach. So you could teach, have health insurance, and – and have time to write. I was working, you know, 10 hours a day as a carpenter and then going and bouncing at night. So that plan for me to write in the mornings, that was falling by the wayside. So, and I remember Gabrielle was very similar to me. Very, she was, I was afraid of her when I was there. She was brutal. Um, She had her own thing. Uh, She was uh, super, uh, aggressive is the wrong word. She did not bullshit anybody. Something sucks," she told you. She would challenge you. I, I, I mean, multiple to
0: times this, to this day. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah I, mean, I remember in workshop. She, I think, she turned her withering gaze on me many, many times. I, I mean, I looked the part. I had work boots. I had wearing camouflage. I, my hands were dirty. I looked like a fucking idiot there, and and I and I looked like probably everything that she hated in the world. Um, but you know, she, her, and I found a real bond because we were brutally honest, and we weren't. We weren't. There was no, there was no pose with. I know it's easy to think that there was no pose with her, um, and and there wasn't a pose with me because we were just there to get it done and to learn how to write, and and she had very little patience for other people there, and so did I. So I think we had this both this sort of deep working class you know uh, bond, um, and I, again I don't really know exactly her background, but I'm assuming that that's what it was.
0: Yeah, I mean you've read her you read her books yeah, yeah, a yeah, little yeah. bit <laughs> about it, her, <laughs> and her mom yeah, and all yeah, that I stuff. From Pittsburgh, uh, I just you know, yeah. So while you were there, did you finish the collect? What happened from there that got you published? I mean, nothing really. I left and then I tried
1: to teach for a little bit longer after that. I stayed on the dole there. I taught for like another year and a half and that, again, I went back to the bar and was bouncing again. And I was, you know, approaching 30 and I was like, if I don't get something published by the time I'm 30, I'm going to hang it up. And so I had written, um, uh, that story What Salmon Know. And I had sent it out yeah. there and no one wanted to publish it at all, period. And uh, and this is a true story. This woman, I, GQ used to run a fiction contest. And uh, I, I entered every contest. I have stacks. My wife just found this like giant, I mean, we all did big rejection stacks. Um, and uh, my, my near yeah. miss was Gordon, Gordon Lish one time had sent me back. Um, I still have it. This is what Gordon Lish is one of my idols. He, uh, this is when he had the quarterly. He's like, yep. he, I had written this story. It's, it's in the collection as it is. Um, and he took a 30-page story and cut it down to 15 pages. And uh, he slashed the shit out of it. And it was the best thing I'd ever written a- after he got done with it. And I remember this note. I still have it. He's like, I will publish if you agree to edit as is. Lish. And I wrote back. I was like, fuck yes. And then the quarterly went out of business. So, uh. I uh, But I have this that story that's in my collection Called Lime is exactly as Lish edited it, and uh, and again, I, you know, I, he's one of my idols from Amy Hempel and you know from Carver and everybody like that. That one I one really of the
0: great liked. editors of all time, yeah, for sure. I mean, a
1: magician, a magician. um But then I I, I was joining contests and I got a call one day from New York, um, and it was this woman's voice, and she's like, "Hi, my name's uh, Elena, um, and uh, I I want to I want to." Um, you know, I want to uh I want to publish your short story. I thought it was a friend of mine from graduate school who would have his girlfriends call up and fuck <laughs> with people. And so I hung I hung up I hung up on her. And uh, you know Amazing. Yeah, and, and so she calls back laughing. She's like, You didn't win the contest, but I really like this story. And I think Adrian Miller was there at the time too as one of the assistants, and she um she Adrian is
0: great. Big, big friend of Amy and mine. Yeah, she's great. Oh, I
1: mean, But again, I, I don't know if she had any hand in picking the story up, but like this woman did what she said she was going to do, um, you know, and, and help me edit the, help me edit the story and got it published. And from there, you know, some people sniffed around and said, can you, you know, do you have a novel? And It turns out I did. I had been working on a football novel. And again, you know, I'm not sure that's the most, that was the most, uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure that was the most commercial thing, but I just kept writing. I mean, but you know, Elena Silverman had been very good to me. She also allowed, allowed me to publish an essay about football, which was then a sales tool for my way into Hollywood and for my novel at the same time.
0: And and so then then the offer came in. I mean, that's right around when we all reconnected. Uh, was yeah. was during that time we at a. We were all at a GQ party. We'd already reconnected a little. David had written you, but we then met. We were all like 30 years old at that party, that GQ party. Um,
1: I, remember, I remember we would just get together early and talk books. And I remember that was, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that was when you guys were just starting out in Hollywood, right?
0: All of us were. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, all of us were. I was. We were yeah. 30, Dave and I. Yeah. and, and um, uh, Or Dave was like 28. I was 30. You were like in between, I think. How, yeah. how old are you now?
1: I'm, oh, geez, 50. Wait, I got to do the math. 50, 53.
0: 50. Right, I'm. I'm fifty. I'm fifty-four. And it, me, you, Tom Kelly, and Dave were would hang out and talk books and all that stuff. Um, but talk about. So, so these books, you get these book deals, you become a, a literary figure. In, in uh, what was I, that? I, I don't know about what, that. I, I got. I got. Well, paid. A fair, what I, was I, the adjustment please, like, though? But here's a question, right? I, I you know, your identity because I'm fascinated by how you've kept the parts of your identity you've kept and the parts of your identity you've had to or you've allowed to flake away in a way as you've become this person who works in the way you do in Hollywood. Be, be but but how did that doing that kind of punishing physical work prepare you for this? But but also talk talk a little bit about the the juxtaposition, you know, the sort of the, the ways in which your value system if they were were were, were brought into question by intersecting with the worlds of publishing in Hollywood as a 30 year old. Cause if I don't six, the football novel got, got option too. And yeah. suddenly you were also having Hollywood meetings. I mean, how did you synthesize all that shit? Uh,
1: uh, money and greed. I mean, I, I remember the, football <laughs> uh, 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 this producer a guy named Brad had read my article and I, I, I drove down from upstate New York. I was living in a farm in upstate New York. Um, I think I was driving to uh, a Home Depot and working up there. And, uh, and he said, well, do you have a novel? I was like, yeah, I got this novel. And he's like, well, I think we can, because he'd read the GQ article about football. He's like, I think I can option that. And I was like, yeah, okay. And he, at that time he was buddies with Mike DeLuca. And, uh, I, I kind of vaguely knew who Mike DeLuca was, but it was still abstract to me. Um, yeah. and he calls her Mike was running. That's when Mike was running new line. New yeah. line yeah. And my, so he calls up, he's like, Mike, Mike loves your book. I was like, "Yeah, right." Like you fucking read it. Um, and so they flew me out there, and you know, it's the first time I ever, you know, was out in LA and in, in, in a meaningful way, and had you know, was out in Hollywood. And uh, I walk into this room, and <laughs> this is this was back, I think, in Mike's little bit more wilder days. He walked into a meeting like at like you know, three or four in the afternoon with like and cracked a beer. Now I don't know if that was for show or not. Um, he sat down in this meeting, and I was like, "Okay, here comes the bullshit, phony Hollywood guy." He knew my book better than I did. He
0: knew. Oh, yeah. That's Mike. That's Mike, man. I was,
1: I was like, I, I remember being in that meeting. I looked like a fucking Jamoke. I was this big guy. I, I stood up. I was like, I got to pay attention to this guy. This guy's not what he seems. And he's quiet, but he fucking knew the book. And he and not only knew the book, but he knew it at a like you said, at molecular level. He knew shit that I didn't even know about the book. And I was like, oh, fuck. I was like, I was like and again, I spent a lot of time searching for that in Hollywood. Those people, turns out, are rarer than you think they are. Um, but he, he was just this super smart guy. And he he's like, we're going to option your book. And so then I leave, leave the meeting and I ask uh, Jenko at the time. I was like, well, uh, how much are they going to pay someone to write this screenplay? And he told me, yeah, there's a guild minimum, whatever, whatever it was at the time. And I was like, oh my, It was more money than I ever made from my books combined. It was um, like
0: 80 grand back then,
1: right? Yeah, 75 was, grand or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. I was like, are you kidding me? So I, he said, well, have you ever written a screenplay? I lied and said I had. I went back, uh, wrote, a, not not based on my book, I wrote a screenplay in two weeks. It was okay. Um, I sent it to him and they go, you can write this. And again, DeLuca had no reason to bet on me. He bet on me and had me write my own script. Now, the development process was difficult. The director disappeared, and you know, said so he was going to take a pass and disappeared for six months and, um, and the project stalled out and DeLuca ended up leaving New Line. But that engagement, you know, we talk a lot about like I tell my kids this all the time. I'm like, you have to know when you're walking through a door. I didn't know I was walking through a door when I met Deluca in Hollywood, and and I should have paid more attention because I never got back in that door for movies. I, you know, I I I fell back out, got back into television, but like to work it with people at that level, um, you know, you you, you know, I, I feel like I have a lot of regrets in my life, but that's one of them. It's like not maintaining that relationship or not paying attention when I, when I was being given this chance. I, 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 again, for own being honest, I wasn't that good of a writer then. I was learning. I had a certain thing. I had a certain skill. Um, but, but I was learning. And so, um, you know, a guy like DeLuca to bet on me like that, it, it changed my life. I ended up eventually getting into Hollywood, but I never got back to that level again. So it's like, you know, I just think you always have to. I always have my eyes open, even today. Like you just never know when you walk through that door. You know what's on the other side of that door. What, what's that transformative? What point do
0: you think you could have done differently, though, man?
1: I, I think I, I think at that time, and I'm being brutally honest. This is why I think a lot of, at the time there was a lot of stigmatism to, if you remember, novelists being screenwriters. Like, you know, everyone loved playwrights. They loved lawyers. You know, I have this. I think playwrights make it's a harder transition to to screenwriting because they want to tell you everything instead of show you everything. But I was still, my heart was still with books. I was working on a novel. So I w- I did the screenplay, but what I should have done was I should have moved out to fucking Hollywood. I should have, you know, taken, you know, I should have, you know, not just that script. I should have went in and pitched Mike 10 different ideas. Um, he did let me, uh, gave me a hand trying to adapt some Andrew Vox books, um, but then he had left Newland at that point. Um, but, you know, it took me a long, long time to get back into Hollywood. I would say five years after that. Um, you know, just trying to because I knew what it was. I, I was like, I, 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 "That guy's smart. That guy's as smart as anybody I've met in the book world." How do I, how do I work with a guy like that?
0: Yeah, I mean, he is one in a million, Mike. I mean, his episode of this podcast is great, and as you know, I've been friends with him for mm-hmm. a very, very long time. But, um, he's,
1: but he's a sneaky, He's like a ninja. You I mean, at the time, there was all these stories about
0: you know DeLuca, I He was wild, and he was young, and he was doing his party. Uh, he was the smartest guy I met out there. And, and Yeah, no, that that's true. But but when you say you should have done that, you should have pitched him. I mean, I question this because that what I wasn't ready, dude. That wasn't your amb- but also that that wasn't your ambition, was it? I'm I'm so interested in why this guy who loved books and 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 novels, like my 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 ambition was more simple. I just wanted to be able to write. Like I just wanted to be able to be a creative person and tell stories. And I liked mov you know, I loved books, but I loved quoting movies. Like all I did was quote David Mamet all day long. I remember this. I remember. So, yeah. So, but you are—you uh, were a, a real book person. You cared about sentences. I mean, All you would talk about back then, literally, you and I could argue for two hours back then about three sentences in an Ethan Canaan book. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, you know, and 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 yet Hollywood. What was the call of Hollywood? And if it was it purely mercenary back then, uh, was it purely about money? Like what? Because as you say, you kind of stumbled in. It wasn't like your intention at first.
1: Well. I- it always is money because I had a family at that point and I realized I was gonna be a I, I started to realize what people made publishing books and then you you were this eye-opening experience where like well most of the people that publish books either their spouse can 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 work for them so they don't have to pay the bills or they come from money or they are they're single per people living you know in the middle of nowhere um i I didn't know that I thought authors made a lot of money so you know yeah the reality of what this thing that I'd fallen in love with, this mistress of books or whatever it was, how cruel it was actually going to be financially to me. So it was a little bit mercenary, but it it wasn't, it wasn't. At that time, you know, everyone was trying to chase the popular hit movie. I was never a popular movie guy. I, I mean, I was the weirdo who watched Herzog movies. Right. And, yes. You know, uh, I, 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 that's the kind of stuff that I love. Now that, that is the most uncommercial. No one's going to hire you. I knew that. But I also could write, so I could fake. And I think anytime you are in between, you're fucked. And I was a guy who was I aspired to do that, but I also bowed to what I thought the commercial tastes were, and I end up in this
0: mushy middle. And that's well, t- that is a bad place to be. That you have to decide which thing you are for sure.
1: No, yes. and, and you, even I even now I realize even with project to project as I become a TV writer. I, I have to know, you talk about intention. I have to know what my intention is going in. And, and even if it seems crazy how I get there, the path I take to get there writing that script, that that is the biggest problem. And then to be honest with you, cable TV had not come to what it was. But I remember part of it was, you know, Bochka was having his run uh, and, and Milch was at, at uh, NYP yeah, And yeah, you, knew, you knew Milch was special. And yes. then you know, Milch gets untethered At you know Deadwood, and at the same time, David Milch is you know a little before that, David Milch is doing Sopranos. I remember watching the Sopranos and going,
0: "This." David Chase, David Chase doing Sopranos. David David Milch 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 doing Deadwood. Yeah, Yeah. Chase.
1: You know, I'm I'm saying both of them. But you know, Chase and Milch. But Chase at that time, here is a guy going come back coming back to what I started with that is doing Philip Roth in television, and I was like, "Fuck," you know, and I could see it, and I could see people talking about it. They talked about. The Sopranos, the way that people talked about short stories and books, the way we used to talk about short stories and books. And, you know, Milch is the other guy. And so I think when, when I saw that, that's when I went, aha, I can do that. I think I can do that. I had no fucking way, you know, how to do that. So I went and got a job. I worked in a variety of network television shows, which paid me really well. And I learned a shitload. Um,
0: but I always kept trying to creep towards cable. And at that time, the cable world was very, very small. And, and didn't your life sort of change when you, which I remember when you told us you were taking that job to write that, that story about the miners. Yeah. And I remember saying to you, gosh, how are you going to distinguish? I remember just feeling like that seems like a really difficult thing. And, 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 and you felt like you could do something that would change your circumstance. And I remember it really did change your circumstance. Talk, can you talk a little bit about that? Cause that story in its bones feels like just a movie of the week. But you were able to do something that got you specific attention, and yeah, and I remember yeah. it as being a launching pad for you.
1: Well, it was. I mean, it was
0: weird. Again, you don't know which door you're going to walk through.
1: I had. I don't remember how it was. I was told that I couldn't sell a TV show, and so um, my agent at the time said, "You, you know, I'm going to give you. Um, there's this job. It's a two, three day rewrite on this pilot. I, it was a cop show pilot. I remember what it was." I rewrote it, and uh, I, and they paid me. I don't. It was very little money. And this producer who I'd never met before, a guy named Larry Sinitsky, um His wife is an agent at uh, WME now, um, uh, Nancy Josephson. Uh, he gets on the phone. He sounds like a gangster, like a Jewish gangster. And he's the most brutally honest. He was a dick. He he goes, you know, goes, he knows, yeah. The first thirty pages are really good, but the rest is, oh my fucking god. <laughs> he starts – and, he, and it's not mean about it, it's not, you know, he, he just, he was brutal and he was right. I hung up the phone and I, I didn't know who, the, I, I didn't, he wasn't supposed to be on the phone. I hung up the phone and I called my agent. I was like, who the fuck? He's like, oh, that's Larry. That's my husband. You should meet him. So I drove down to LA um, and picked him an idea for a TV show and, uh, and we sold it right away. And uh, I mean, we walked in, I remember having lunch at the farm and, and he was just, just, first time I meet this guy, he's like, you can sell this show. He's like, go in, don't worry. I'll kick you if you go wrong. And, and he, cause he was a big TV movie guy. He knew how to sell things and he, he could go in and tell stories forever. He's a really colorful character. So I went in there. And, so, and, and again, these are all learning spirits. I was, I was living in Montana at the time and I drove down there in my car. And I, I remember I slept in a, uh, a parking lot on Malibu somewhere. Wait, you, you know how he,
0: old, hold on. How old were you at this time? You think? I'm in my, like, I, this is after me flunking out with uh, DeLuca. So I'm probably. So like, you're in your early thirties, mid thirties. Yeah. How many, uh, how many kids did you have at that point? Three, maybe, or three. And, and what's you the grand grant total have, now?
1: At that point, I have five. Um, five, right. Remember the number so, of so kids in all time? It's just a blur, but yeah. So
0: you um, had three kids. You're sleeping in your car to, uh, for when you come to LA for a meeting. You, you go have the meeting, and he says, Let's go pitch right now.
1: Yeah. And, and I was like, He walked in. He knew everybody because he, he'd been in two moves, and we sold it. He was, again, he did what, just like DeLuca, he did what he said he was going to do. So then he gets this phone call. And he's like, I don't know. These miners got trapped. Do you remember the miners got trapped in Pennsylvania?
0: Yeah, no, I know. Wait, wait, he gets this phone call when you're with him? No, this is after we'd sold the show. Right. This is about
1: a month or two after. And I, and I wrote the show and, 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 and nothing really happened with it. And he's like, well, yeah. can, you, can you write it? We're going to fly down to Pennsylvania. We're going to start production with David Frankel as the director. Um, they don't have a, they, we don't have a script. You're going to write the script in the hotel room as we're doing pre-production on the thing. And I was like, again, this is this crazy Larry guy. I was like, all right, that sounds like fun. So we, we flew to Pennsylvania, met the miners who had just been rescued like a month earlier. And they, you know, they, they've been rescued in the spring and Disney wanted to put a movie on in the fall. And I, I remember, you know, they put me in this hotel room, they threw food underneath the door and every day they would walk in my room and Larry would be like, let me see the pages. And he'd read the pages. he this is shit. This is Okay. This could be better. And he'd throw him on the <laughs> floor and he'd walk out. And I'd keep writing. It was, it was, again, dude, I'm learning. I'm getting education. I'm doing reps. I'm doing push-ups.
0: How much pressure did that feel like? To, I mean, I remember the first one of those kind of jobs that we had, but it was after we'd made a few movies that it was still pressure-filled. I mean, how, how, pr- how much did you feel that pressure to deliver? Did you feel like your career was on the line with this or, or were you mellow about it?
1: I'm never mellow. And again, I, I've again, having learned a lot in my career subsequently. You, I need that feeling. If you don't have that feeling, like that fear, like jumping out of a plane, yeah, it, uh, my stuff, I, this is just me personally. It's not going to be as good. So I, I've learned to be, you know, I've picked projects that I don't know how to do or I don't have an easy way in on them. That, that's been my, as I've moved forward in my career, is seeking that feeling. Now, I don't want to write a script in two weeks because I can't make it great, but back then, I sure thought I could, you know, and I remember, you know, it was just, you know, the whole process with David Franco, the director, and, you know, Larry Sinitsky and even the line producer there, they taught me how to do it. They were like, I'd write these things. i go, we can't do it. We, don't, we only, have, you know, we have one farm. We don't have five farms. Right. Get the fucking location, idiot. And they would take me out to the farm we were shooting on. They go, look, set your scene. Larry would literally walk me through. He's like, you're going to put a scene here. Three people. He, he was like this producer. Three people in this fucking room we will shoot this way. That's it. I learned how to assemble something that could be produced in two weeks.
0: That's so, incredible. And David Frankel, who became a really important director. So obviously he was a guy who was really about to blow up. Yeah, he was under so
1: much pressure, dude. I mean, they were banging him about the budget. And I remember I learned a lesson from him too. He, would, he, he took it all in. His back was all tense and he was, I had to crack his back every night. I, I crack a lot of people's backs because I'm big. And uh, he would be uh, he would just come to me. He's like, Elwood, no one remembers if the movie's bad. They'll only remember if it's good. They'll never remember how much money we spent. So because, you know, his, his thing is he didn't have enough money, he didn't have enough time. And So he, I got to see him, a lesson I learned much later as a showrunner, always fight, fight to make it good. You know, I mean, it, it sucks fighting about money, fighting about time, but if you think you can make it better, it's worth it. You know, and Frankel was that guy fighting that for me.
0: Yeah, to- totally worth it to wage the fight, to learn how to wage the fight in a way that they don't yeah. hate you.
1: Yeah, is very I, useful I, I did that, dude. You, I, I've i always assumed you guys were way better at that than I was. I was a uncouth, grouchy, glowering, you know, lurch looking dude who who I think every word in my mouth sounded like I was picking a fight to somebody. And I didn't feel that way, but I always assumed you guys were much better at
0: that, the politics, so to speak. I've learned how to be uh, yeah. better at politics. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Like we certainly were trained to be by – yeah, you know, I was by growing up with a dad who understood how to manage all that kind of thing. But still sometimes you just can't help acting like you try. I mean, I've talked about this a bunch, but you try your best not to. Um, and once in a while when you, what you really learn to do is when you realize you've acted like a dick, apologize quickly and try to fix it. Can, can
1: I know um, I mean, it's not supposed to, be. I just ask you a personal question. You can cut this out if you want. Cause you know, like I, I've met your dad a few times and I've heard you talk about your dad. I remember with my dad, um, he was like trying to teach me how to fix a car and I didn't want to pay attention to it. And now it's one of the regrets of my life that I didn't pay attention. But did you pay attention to the way your dad did business or were you like-
0: Yeah, really close, incredibly close. to? Yeah. But because Elwood, he wouldn't do it with, let me teach you how to do something. What he would do, because he worked for himself, he could. He would just be like, Brian, come to this meeting with these guys. They're like sort of gangsters. Uh, they're in the, just come to the meeting and tell me where the, you know, just try to notice when that one guy looks at the other guy, you know, he would just sort of like clue me in well, or he would, cause he was your he dad. Would ha- I, I didn't mention, you know, he, yeah, he would just have me sort of like around. And then the stuff he was doing was so cool. Right. I would go to a recording studio and I would watch him get a lead vocal out of somebody. And that taught me how to talk to actors. You know, it's like the, he, he never spoke about it to me. He just let me be part of it, which, which, is just the most incredible advantage. It's such a giant life hack, right? I got to apprentice in a certain way and watch what worked and watch what didn't work. So that was a huge advantage. By the way, sometimes I would watch him fight against like the big corporations sometimes. And I would watch him when he would finally tell a guy to fuck off and he'd feel good about it in that moment. And then later he'd feel bad about it, and you know that still happens uh, for me. But it was a huge hack to be able to see that, and it, it gave me a lot of um, insight. And Levine was around that a bunch too, because he was I, around I the remember, house. I
1: remember. I, I mean, I remember even being around your father. I remember seeing you with your father, and I'd be like, "Look, it, it's this thing. We have kids. And I, I don't sound like an old dad here, but like." I just feel like because of the phones and the technology and the way that kids learn these days, like there's not that old school. Like, I remember, I tell my kids constantly, I'm like, your job is to listen, to prick your ears up, to pay the fuck attention because you don't know. Like, again, for example, me walking into DeLuca, I probably could have learned a whole, I, I probably have a whole different career as a feature writer had I just paid attention and tried to stay in that room long. It's, it's, I mean, are, do you still just? Room. I mean,
0: you're a you're a huge
1: success in Hollywood now. Do you still well, just know, beat? The sh-
0: but i You still just beat eight, yourself up
1: all the time. No, no, but it's but the thing about it is, is like you. Again, it goes back to what i was saying, it's like you, you don't know what room you're walking into. For luckily for you, you were in a room with your dad all the time. Like I, I would have killed to have been with somebody like that, just to learn that stuff. Now, again, I learned how to like do other things, you know, build a wall and like, you know, yeah, I wish
0: I knew how to, I mean, in the times like these, like when, when you can't have anybody come fix anything in your house, I wish I knew all the shit, you know, buddy, like, you know what I mean? I I, I wish I I understood how to nail two boards together. Uh, sadly I don't No, You know, I'll say the biggest thing with that whole, and then my dad and we'll move off this is he taught me how to talk to powerful people. And that, that when you walk into when you're young and walking into Hollywood meetings, the fear can make you choke on your words, can make you not be funny, can make you not lose. I never had that fear because I understood. In I just understood how to talk to those people in a way that would make them feel comfortable. I did. And I did that. I did how to do that. Yeah. I yeah, still don't know how to do that. Yeah. Well, so how'd you figure it out though? So, so from your show, just talk about. The, the the show becomes a huge hit on Disney. The show you wrote becomes a huge hit, right? The the minor story.
1: Yeah, people watched it. Yeah,
0: because it was topical. Yeah. Um, but, but but how did that re- how did that redound in benefit to you though? Because then that's when you started getting all those network jobs, isn't it? Or no? Did it go? A yeah. Way? Well, I mean, it was. I,
1: then I had this idea. I was like, well, I'm going to be with Larry. I hitched my wagon to Larry. I was like, I'm going to be a TV movie of the week guy. You know, that lasted about two more years, and then TV movies of the week died. Since come back, but they, it was a great business. I could do, I did like a Robert Ludlam miniseries. I had a bunch of other stuff that didn't go, but like I could do two of those a year and make as much as someone that was working on a TV show could make. So, and I could, I was writing my novels at the time. I was trying to, you know, still write that book that someone would read. It turns out, you know, people don't read anymore. But um, I, then I made the transition. I remember, you know, uh, trying to sell another TV thing. Someone said, well, you know, they're going to let, they're going to make someone else run your show for you. And I was like, what do you mean run my show? I didn't really know what a right. show run at the time. And, uh, and I was like, okay. I'm like, why is that? It's like, well, because you've never staffed before. I'm like, okay, what's staffing? So I, I then took a job staffing with a, a botchko company. Um, and, you know, they'd read my script. Steven and his wife, Dan, had read my script. And they hired me sight unseen. They brought me in. And I was there to write the, supposedly write the fr- last season of NYPD Blue. Um, And they'd shortened the season, ABC had shortened the season. And I remember Steven came into my office one day and he drops a script on my table and he goes, (laughs) what, Elwood? He's like, you don't want to write NYPD Blue. I'm sick of making David Mills rich. And he's like, it's over with anyways. And he's like, here's my new hit show. And it was a show about a blind detective called Blind Justice.
0: I remember Dave and I. Yeah, watching it so we could watch your work. And I believe we sent you a bunch of notes during, oh, I think no. we sent you a bunch of emails and texts during that.
1: It was, it was, let's say, writing a cop show with a blind lead is challenging, to say the least. But again, I learned a lot from Botchko. You know, that thing about talking to power. And I remember the way he protected writers. And I remember the way that he could interface. He had two faces. He could talk to a writer. But then when he turned and talked to a studio boss, I could tell that he was, I don't know how to say this. He knew how to lie to them but not feel like they were being lied to. And I don't mean that in a malicious way. He he was very good at telling them what he thought they wanted to hear so he could get what he wanted. And he was just this, I learned a lot. Again, I, I, my job is always like, you know, even to this day, I need to learn, even the show I just did Barkskins, I learned a lot from the people that I work with. I, I'm i always looking for the, how do they do it thing? And it's like breaking it down. And like, you know, Bochka was just a master politician. He was a master pitcher. He was like you said, he, just like you, easy in a room, you know, was just lit, lit the room the opposite of me. So I, I've always been just around looking for models on how to be better at what I do.
0: Right. And of course, David and I have always admired the shit out of the way that you do what you do. Like, we both think you're a great writer and your approach, which is just to get the thing done and get it done as well as you can. And it's sort of an approach that a carpenter would take. It makes, I mean, you often talk in terms of that when you talk to your friends, like you try to demystify the whole thing, it seems to me, and just throw yourself at it with everything that you have. Yeah, I mean, look,
1: if I can write, anybody can write. I mean, I, I learned how to write by knockdown and by doing unbelievable amount of repetitions and reading. I think reading is the single most important thing. And again, you, you and I, we, we, we lament this all the time. I have, I find a hard, I find writer's rooms very difficult because the, the coin of the realm in a writer's room is not the things that I care about. I, I care about books. I care about referencing, you know, great TV shows from time to time in movies, but it's mostly books that I go back to. And I, I've been in a lot of rooms where no one's read a book and I don't mean not read a book, but they haven't read
0: a book actively. Do you assign the book? Do you assign the book?
1: No, no, no. I, I just hire people that are writers. In my last room. Had three novelists in it Walter Kern, Sherry Holman, and Cassania Melnick, and then another right. guy, with a playwright. So, like, I, I tend to like, I, I tend to, I'm always pulling for the novelist short story writer team because, I, you know, th- I know how much work it took me to, to, how many reps it took me to even get good to write one single paragraph, let alone, you know, a sentence. So, I think TV has, again, it's, uh, I shouldn't say this, the craft of TV takes a long time, but that, that struggle of trying to complete a novel or short story is something that it gives you grit. And, and I'm always looking
0: for that. And yeah. And, that, and I spec scripts are similar. I think having a, when you write spec scripts over and over again, if yeah, you want to be a well, movie person. A creator, dude. I mean, that, that's, I mean, look, you guys,
1: I remember when you guys were making the transition in television, this is interesting. I, at that time, I remember I was like, I was like, good luck because you guys are not staffing. And I, and I realized I'd staffed some, I was not a natural born staffer. I could, Do it if I had to. I was I. I love to write. I would do whatever the showrunner tell me to do. But there are a lot of people in this world, and I count myself among them. Where I think I'm at my best when I'm doing my own creative work. When I'm original. You guys, you guys were generators of original material. There are not that many people in Hollywood that do that. And I've come to realize there's not. There's a lot of people think they know how to do that. They do it once, but can you do it multiple times?
0: No. I mean, I look back now, and it's a body of work from just do it from the same thing you're talking about. By the way, that just literally just. Dave and I would just show up at that office and just, yeah. Yeah. you know, we would just show up at the office and just write pages. And yeah. whether we were getting paid to or not, we were just writing pages well, every day, creating well, the next yeah. thing.
1: You could have gone on staff. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you have to hold out to be a creator. And I find that with a lot of younger writers coming well, up.
0: Well, we were lucky that the film business was still paying. You know, we were still had a real career at that, even though I saw the end of it after runner runner, I saw that it was going to end and I saw we were in free, we would have been free fall, but we would have been able to drag out the money for another couple of years. It just would have been painful and, and we needed to take a really big swing. So Elwood, what brought you to Barks? What brought you to Barkskins? What is it about this story? And again, just to, as we get toward the end here, I want to say how much I dig the show and I can't wait to run through the whole series, but what, What attracted you to this material at at this time? Um, It's funny, I've been reading a bunch of books about the history of capitalism in America and a bunch of stuff about how these workers, indentured workers would come over. Just what made you feel like this is a story to tell?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of it was the not knowing, like in the fear, like the book is not an adaptable book. It covers 300 and some years it's 700 and, you 725 know, pages. It's, it's a big book. Um, it doesn't scream adaptation. It's people running around in, in the St. Lawrence Seaway trying to form a civilization. And I've always been obsessed with these um, systems books. Like on one of the books, um, uh, The Power Broker. Was it, wait, what's the Caro book about Robert yeah, Moses? Yeah,
0: Robert caro The Power Broker, about, uh, uh, of course. Yeah, yeah, about thinking, Moses, yeah. about Robert Moses, yeah.
1: I'm obsessed with that because when you read that book, what Moses did is amazing in, in, in a, the growth of New York City, but like that that's going on eternally. I'm like, when I read this book and then I looked into the history of the settlement of North America, all the shit that we're dealing with right now and the stuff we've been doing every 100 year cycles, it's still there, It's, it's it doesn't change. And like, you know, I just find so many people are ignorant of history. I listen and read a lot of Roman, ancient Greek history and it's just, it's there. And I know I sound like, again, I sound like the old guy, like, you know, those who don't read history are doomed to repeat it, but it's there. And so I, I thought that was my excuse to myself to 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 do a show in the woods and build an entire village. And and going back to what you'd started this topic of conversation with, was like, I knew that no one involved in this really knew this fucking world at all, you know, including Scott, Scott Rudin there. I mean, they knew the book, they knew the auspices, they knew where they were going to sell, but they didn't. I went and dove in and did this research. And I was like, you know what? I can do a lot of shit here and they're not going to call me. And, and, and I knew it could be weird because I admit you get people in the woods and you get religion and you get, you know, the first nations tribes and you get the British trying to fuck the French. There's a lot of room for weirdness there. And there's a lot of room for violence, things that I like. Um, and so I, I, I realized it was a perfect Trojan horse for me to write about a lot of my obsessions. I write a lot about the woods. I write a lot about the nature of man. I write a lot about, you know, my view of humanity. And I, and I don't, I'm not trying to shove vegetables down your throat, but it's always there. I always think characters, people come from a place. And so I, I try to embody that in my characters. And so that that book was this huge blank canvas. And again, it's Annie Prue. Um, it, it, she's a writer from the shipping news who meant a lot to me. So mm-hmm. I had to read the book, forget about it, and then go, okay, what's a really cool show here I can do with this setting and these characters? And that's how I approached it. I mean, it's, but again, it goes back to, I did not know. You asked me, I wish I could, t- I, I had fear and I had a handful of dark, weird ideas. And I was like, well, maybe Scott Rudin and National Geographic and Fox will let me get away with putting this shit in there because they're not going to read this book. So I did it.
0: <laughs> well, I want you to keep getting away with all this for a really long time. And we have to do a part two because there's so much more. Uh, when your next thing happens, you got to come on. I mean, look, it, it's great. Uh, for the listeners, you should know that a couple times a year, maybe three times a year, Elwood and I get on the phone and do this. Yeah. We do a version of this. We just do like. Sometimes they'll go for over two hours. Those conversations. Oh.
1: We we got to get books, dude. i, I yeah. Oh, I, yeah,
0: I, we 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 we're we due for one of those calls. So I'm glad we could just do this here. Everybody, uh, don't look for Elwood on social media. You're not really going to find him there. But go read. I'll say go watch his show, and go read his books. The books are excellent. Uh, and um. Even the one we, he, it's funny when you referenced jumping out of a plane before, I thought, well, that metaphor means a lot to Elwood because you right. also wrote a book about that once. Um, well, and Rob,
1: uh, can I just say one thing to you? I, just, I know you, you can cut this out of the podcast. You won't yeah, like, say anything you want. No, but I just, it again, I'm not to sound sappy, but the, and this is putting aside, this is our relationship. The relationship that you and I have, and we're, we're talking about something people don't know about, but like it's very, it's been very meaningful to me throughout my career because. You're a guy who's had success and you've struggled. And we've, we've, but there's this thing when we call and we talk about books and things that matter to me. I know that I can get you almost to the level of a fight by insulting David Foster Wallace. Yeah. And th- that means a lot to me because you, you have strong passions. And like, I only want to be, and I only want to engage with people who have strong feelings and opinions about things. And you've always been that guy for me. Like, and, and that, and again, you, you look for those people. And you're also the guy yeah. I ask for advice from all the time, like, how to be nicer how to be smoother in that room with powerful people.
0: Um, Well, there is something Elwood about the fact that you, me, Levine and Tommy, Kelly all became friends as we were all setting off on this, on this journey. And we've never not been in touch and we've never not checked in on each other during all parts of this thing and been there for each other. And that's a, it's a rare thing in the business and it's a great thing. And and, if, and most of my listeners know uh, that at various times I've been pretty big, like 250. And at one of those big times, because when you mentioned cracking people's back, you and I were walking in the valley on our way to Sushi uh, Nozawa. And you looked at me, and you said, you're walking kind of funny. Is your back fucked up? And I was like, yeah. It's, and before I knew it, you had lifted me into the air basically with one hand and you just shook me like a rag doll. And my whole back just went and straightened out. And I could walk perfectly the rest of the day. And I, I got to say, man, that was really amazing. I, I mean, just for that alone, uh, I love you. So, Elwood, congrats on the show, man. And um, I'll talk to you soon. Everybody, you can find me at Brian Koppelman. Email me at the moment, bk at gmail.com, if you have anything you want to say. And I'll see you all soon.